Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Amantia Muhadini. Amantia is a sustainable and impact investing strategist for the Americas with UBS CIO. I'm glad to welcome as well Jens Piers of Morova, an affiliate of Natixis Investment Managers. Jens serves as the firm's chief executive officer, as well as chief investment officer. So with that, Amantia, Jens, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for spending some time with our advisors, our clients, our listeners. Looking forward to the conversation. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So up front, I do want to point out, especially for our clients of UBS, that our conversation today will tie right into the latest edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication from the UBS Chief Investment Office, which can now be located up on UBS.com CIO. So looking forward to diving into the topics within that piece with Amantia and Jens on the podcast today. So with that, let's get right into it. And maybe Amantia, as a start, point, let's perhaps discuss how governments across the globe are working towards financing the climate transition. One such example, which you do address within the latest SI Perspectives piece, is the Green Deal Industrial Plan. That is the European Union's response to the Inflation Reduction Act from the United States. So, Amantia, can you talk to us a bit about what GDIP calls for and the kind of impact it can make? Of course, Dan, thank you. And this question of um, uh, fiscal support or regulatory support for um, industries that are associated with the climate transition is a story that we have been following um, for for over a year now um, and, and very much a global phenomenon. And one of those areas where we and, and investors in general are recognizing um, is one of those areas that, that is bringing tailwinds over the longer term to these industries. Um, you're, you're asking about the European Union recent um, uh, kind of discussions around an enhanced or, or kind of implementation plan around their Green Deal uh, regulatory framework but um, this uh, is very much sort of a response and, and uh, can be compared to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act uh, allocation to financing clean energy and electrification. Um, I think we, you and I and, and our guests have talked a lot on this podcast series about the possible impact of the U.S. IRA, which allocated $390 billion more or less for um, financing areas like renewable energy or electrification, electric vehicles and so forth. Um, now, why I'm starting here with the U.S., even though the question is about Europe, is because um, to unlock the full amount of some of the tax-related benefits uh, that are predicted in the IRA, uh, companies will be required to either have majority production or assembly or sourcing within the borders of the U.S., which is creating some interesting incentives here for companies outside of the U.S. to, to consider um, investment uh, in, in this country. And in part, what we're observing is that this uh, U.S. policy decision of last year um, is creating almost kind of a race to the top, where the European Union um, came out a few months ago and, and kind of indicated the need for them to further incentivize their domestic um, kind of industrial evolution. So we see this uh, Green Deal industrial plan for the net zero era, a long uh, kind of mouthful, um, as one of those areas of policy response from the EU. 
Now, the GDIP um, includes four pillars. Um, it focuses on simplifying the regulatory environment across the European Union. It focuses on accelerating access to finance, and many times sources of funding that have already been predicted in prior EU-led initiatives uh, for climate technologies. Um, it focuses on, on number three, enhancing skills. So thinking about a just transition, who are the people who are being employed into uh, these industries, as well as uh, on, on it's focusing on opening trade opportunities to unlock some of the bottlenecks in supply chains that would hamper growth and development. Um, broadly, overall, uh, GDEP in our assessment does not propose to allocate any new or meaningfully new additional funding sources. Um, instead, it's aiming to either unlock or accelerate or redirect funding um, that has been earmarked private previously from initiatives like the EU Green Deal or Repower EU, which were approved uh, in 2021 and 2022. Um, still, even without new meaningful funding reallocated, we think that the simpler permitting rules, which they are discussing and proposing, um, could make life easier, could accelerate uh, the ability for companies to take advantage of financing and start deploying and, and start uh, kind of doing the needed investment here and therefore benefiting uh, those companies from our perspective here as investors. Um, so I'd say, you know, the, the, the impact broadly that it can have is to further increase uh, this, this focus on investment in the EU. And our um, kind of taking a step back here, it also further emphasizes the opportunities that we see for investors across these themes, namely, um, be it clean air and carbon reduction or investments in smart mobility and energy efficiency, um, as well as it uh, supports our broader view that investors should look for opportunities in a diversified manner across regions. So in this case, the U.S., the European Union, and, and also, of course, Asia Pacific. Not the topic of discussion today, but lots of activity there as well. Well, thank you, Amantia. Maybe we can run with that latter point a bit in terms of opportunities. And from the sounds of it, in order for investors to realize opportunities here, diversifying across regions is key, Amantia, as you pointed out. So, Jens, to welcome you into the conversation, can you break out considerations when it comes to approach here a bit further for us? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, and indeed, as an investor, it's really you know, always important to diversify. Uh, but it's equally important to look at, you know, both, um, you know, risks uh, and opportunities. And, and, you know, there's a reason why, you know, many governments in the world are now taking action uh, against, you know, climate change, because it's, you know, really leading to a lot of risks. Um, and already there, like, you know, that, that's something you have to take into account. You know, uh, different regions have different regulations about, for instance, um, you know, the just the, 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 the total amount of carbon that, you know, an industrial company can emit, for instance, et cetera, that may be different across the world. So really understanding that regulation difference uh, between the different regions is really, really important because they have a, that, that all has an impact on, on valuation and, and, uh, of, of companies, but also physical risks like droughts, um, hurricanes, for instance, as well, uh, could really impact uh, companies on the negative side very, very likely as well. Uh, but apart from risks and making sure that we understand that properly and avoid you know, companies that don't do it well, it's also important to, to, to find companies that offer solutions to actually get us to where we need to be, uh, which is a, you know, an economy that is less dependent on, on, on carbon um, for, for energy. Um, you know, in terms of the, 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 the regional opportunities, um, you know, what Amante already alluded to as well, it's all in the details. Um, on the one hand, we have many global companies that are active in different regions, um, but uh, you know, much of the new regulation, for instance, is very supportive when um, you know production, for instance, of 
of solar panels or wind turbines is happening really locally uh, as well. So we already see that some um, you know, European companies, for instance, are adapting uh, the, you know, where they produce um, the new regulation as well. So, you know, the point I want to make is that U.S. regulation is not only good for U.S. companies and, and European regulation not only good for European companies, but companies will certainly start uh, adapting. Um, from a, a way to you know, apply its point of view, um, you know, we've seen that historically we've had more regional specialists as well. Com- you know, countries like Denmark have, you know, historically been a first mover in uh, areas like wind. So you see a lot of strong wind players, for instance, there as well. And those are, you know, some of the same companies that will find opportunities, you know, in Asia and in the U.S., for instance, as well. China has been, you know, um, historically a big player in solar. Um, um, but you also see that, you know, that further down the value chain, you know, they have other opportunities, of course, as well, coming into the, uh, into the U.S. Uh, but again, like, you know, the regulation is really uh, also... Um, you know, designed in such a way that it's stimulating local investment. So we see a lot of these companies starting uh, operations, you know, locally as well. Um, and, you know, again, like, you know, last thing I'm going to say that you know, uh, Amanti already mentioned it, the race to the top. So there's a bit of competition between the different regions uh, as well. And that will also lead to different opportunities between the regions as well. And we see, for instance, for Europe, not only climate change, but also energy independence, that becomes a lot more uh, important. Large-scale energy storage, for instance, is very important for them as well. And we see a lot more opportunities there in areas like hydrogen, uh, which will be a very regional-specific uh, opportunity, first in Europe, and obviously also then coming to other regions like you know Asia um, and U.S. as well. Well, Jens, thank you for expanding on those positioning considerations for us. And there's a lot here that we'll, of course, continue to track. If we shift a bit to our second focus topic for the conversation today, that being the future of transportation, which has been an ongoing point of interest, a fascinating topic, which, Amanti, I believe we've covered prior for our listeners, our clients, though within the latest edition of SI Perspectives, you do talk about how this story is progressing. There's a lot to catch our audience up on here. You cited a couple of examples within the piece. So what can you share with us? Yeah, of course. And, and in some ways, we're switching gears here, but also in other ways, we're not, because we're talking about innovation in those areas uh, of, of our economy that are the most carbon intensive, and yet uh, are areas of our economy that we cannot do without. Uh, and, and namely, transportation, uh, kind of short haul, long haul is, is part of that. Um, what caught our attention over the last month was the news of a major U.S. airline announcing the launch of a fund that aims to invest in sustainable aviation fuel. Um, this fund is, is launched by this airline, but it's also backed by other corporations in the aerospace as well as financial industries, and will just start with about $100 million in capital. Now, this is interesting because sustainable aviation fuel um, currently accounts for a very negligible amount of air transport fuel. Um, it's also subject to blending limits for commercial purposes from, from, a, from a regulatory perspective. Um, but it's also critical as we think about the problem of airline travel um, as one of those areas that, that are uh, hard to abate, as, as uh, professionals in the climate space would say, meaning it's very difficult to, to switch out the existing uh, forms of fuel to lower carbon intensive ones. And yet we all want um, airline travel uh, as part of our lives and economic development. Um, so that's an interesting area here, this kind of additional investment in, in SAS, um, sustainable air, air fuel, um, as well as, you know, 
I just noted $100 million in capital. It seems like a small amount, but um, tax credits are now uh, kind of being baked into the IRA again to to help uh, incentivize uh, investment and acceleration of sustainable airline uh, air fuel, um, as well as they're also predicted within the EU's refuel plan and, and California's low-carbon fuel standards. So, so it could be a very interesting way of envisioning a future here of lower emission um, air transportation where, um, you know, we as individual consumers or business travelers don't have to focus so much on looking at the CO2 footprint <laughs> and making individual decisions um, when, when we search for flights. Um, now, along these same lines, um, you know, as we think about transport, you know, there's air travel, there's also, of course, land travel. And if we think of uh, electrifying car transport, um, we've talked before about how one of the key areas of evolution to unlock EVs uh, and make them uh, really penetrate the market is having um, charging infrastructure as well as batteries that have long range um, and can meet demand. Um, now, part of this battery question is is battery recycling, not just um, kind of extracting resources and, and coming up against those material limitations eventually, but finding ways how to reuse existing batteries. Um, and, and here is, is interesting innovation, too. I mean, the U.S. Department of Energy recently announced several loans amounting for multiple of billions of dollars to private U.S. battery recyclers. So this is, again, in private markets, but, but is where often this innovation starts, and maybe we can see it uh, accelerate and create opportunities in public markets as well. So, so a lot is, is happening that we're watching in this uh, transport space. Yes, Amathi, as you outlined for us, certainly a lot of angles associated with this story. So thematically and even perhaps longer term speaking, Jens, what does the opportunity set associated with this story look like from your vantage point? And take it a step further, what might be some considerations for investors when it comes to direct exposure? Yeah, sure. Well, if you're looking at you know, transportation, be it now air or land transportation or even sea transportation, there's, you know, there's, there's many ways to look at it. But it's very important to look at the full you know, value chain uh, as well and the full supply chain. You know, um, We're talking about electrification of our car fleet. Uh, we do in- indeed see like, you know, a massive need for batteries. Uh, it's not just investing in electric cars, but it's also investing in the components that you know, make that work properly, um, make those cars more efficiently. There's a, a few um, you know, really good you know, U.S. and European companies, for instance, that are active in um, you know, energy efficiency, you know, components to make you know, com- uh, cars lighter, uh, to make them more efficient, it's going to be a lot more electrical as well. So those electrical components are really important. Uh, you can also play it indirectly through data. Uh, you know, many of these cars are also hyper-connected. Um, there's a lot of you know data you know, or, or data collected uh, here as well to optimize cars to eventually also you know turn them into automatic you know um, or self-driving cars, for instance, as well. So there's, there's opportunities there as well. At Mirova, we also have you know, uh, you know, a team that invests in a lot of direct infrastructure. And a lot of things that are happening there right now, we believe, will actually be very important in the future as well. And as you already mentioned, hydrogen, there's a lot of projects happening there. And that certainly would be uh, part of the longer-term solution also for you know, air and uh, sea transportation. But you know, charging stations you know, is a huge topic in the unlisted market uh, right now as well. I think there's many opportunities there too, uh, and then you're looking for alternative metals or batteries as well. Recycling, if you look at the um, you know, the, the listed market as well, there's a really good you know Belgian company, for instance, as well that is active in this space. 
Um, you know, so we just you know, reduce the need for you know, virgin metals for instance, to be used in those batteries. Uh, and a lot of these rare earth materials and precious metals could be recycled that way as well. There's just big opportunities uh, there too. Um, so just, you know, not looking just for direct, the obvious choices, but looking along the, the value chain you know, is, is also really important. And as part of it, for instance, as well, there's a lot of opportunities now with um, you know, car manufacturers, for instance, too. Like, you know, it's not just investing in companies that already are 100% exposed to renewable, uh, sorry, to, uh, to electric cars, but it's, um, you know, some of the, the more incumbent um, you know, OEMs, you know, the car producers as well, that are really starting to accelerate and, and you know, their investment as well, that have made announcements of being fully electric, for instance, by 2030, um, and you know, many of those car manufacturers are actually valued um, at a much cheaper uh, price as well than their pure play electric um, uh, competitors, for instance, as well. And assuming that they actually will get to those targets and be fully electric by 2030, for instance, you also see great opportunities there. So there's quite a few avenues there to consider, including on a global scale. So, Jens, thank you for walking our listeners through that. Pivoting now to our third and final topic for today, something I'm sure many of our listeners, myself included, can relate to, is the surge we've experienced in energy prices this over the span of the past year. And this is on a global scale, not specific to the United States. So with that, Amantia, curious as to how this is translated to carbon emissions during this span, and what are some takeaways in terms of consumer demand and behavior trends you can share with us? Yeah, of course, Dan. And um, the reason why this is an interesting question is, is what you're kind of hinting in, in your question there, which um, is namely there's a hypothesis that um, as prices increase uh, for areas that are um, you know, more carbon intensive. It means that that um, externality, that social cost of emitting additional uh, carbon will be embedded in. And part of how that will be embedded into decision making will be just strictly, you know, through consumers just consuming less uh, of whatever good or service that is. And so this uh, was interesting as it's been uh, kind of in, in real life uh, in a way tested uh, through last year as utility prices increased. And, and the question was, uh, would would all of us kept consuming as much energy um, and, and therefore emitting as much um and, you know, well, in, in the context of higher prices. Now, uh, because this was a perfect <laughs> experiment, lots of other changes uh, were happening over the last year with uh, war in Ukraine that triggered some of the increase in utility and electricity prices, uh, as well as supply chain and other dynamics, um, uh, and also regulators coming in and, and in some cases stepping into power markets. Uh, but to... But, Take a little look at a quick look at I guess the question. Um, we looked at Germany in particular. Um, Germany was interesting because um, what uh, the, an organization called AGB, AGEB noted was that over 2022, Germany saw a 4.7% decline year on year in total energy consumption, um, which was the lowest energy of the country uh, consumption energy consumption of, since the country's reunification. Um, and this was also, you know, in the context of these higher energy prices and also in the context of a relatively mild winter, uh, which, you know, probably naturally reduced energy demand as people didn't need as much fuel to heat their homes. Um, now, it's interesting here because this 4.7% energy decline uh, was 
more than the slowdown in GDP that Germany experienced over the last year. Um, on the other hand, what we saw in Germany was that it experienced a 7.4% year-on-year increase in renewable power generation. And so what this means essentially is that people were consuming less energy, either influenced by prices or by uh, a milder winter. And on the other hand, Germany is, uh, is increasing its renewable power generation. So what was the impact here on carbon emissions? Well, emissions were estimated to have risen by a low single digit uh, over the course of 2022. And what's interesting here is that this was in part driven by a switch away from, from nuclear energy that Germany had been in the process of undergoing and a temporary switch towards coal power plants uh, to respond to the Ukraine uh, kind of war-triggered energy crisis. Now, what does this tell us? Where, where do all of these numbers leave us? Um, firstly, what we're gathering here is that price elasticity in utility demand um, does matter. Higher prices are somewhat effective in changing consumer behavior. Um, now, of course, this is important here to, to balance against uh, justice, right? Higher utility prices also translate in pain uh, for, in particular, low-income households. So this is perhaps not the way to drive down carbon emissions, and it's very much a consideration here. Secondly, it also, and tied to this point, it shows us the limitation of individual behavior in changing uh, kind of um, the, the way that the power system is structured and in driving towards net zero. Ultimately, even though consumer behavior changed, it was this broader macro development um, that sort of drove the net result in carbon emissions. And, and where this leads us then is in a conclusion that while we do see a societal broadening and understanding of, of this, the importance of emissions and, and consumers are price sensitive to an extent, ultimately what will be most important in reducing um, the energy intensity and CO2 intensity of energy production will be additional investment in renewable energy, in alternatives, and so in kind of thinking more about the supply side of the question. It's very interesting to hear about the impact to individual households and to carbon emissions. So tying your renewables a bit further, Jens, to what extent can individual consumption behavior contribute towards emission reduction efforts? And in what ways can renewables make an impact as renewable sources gain more relevance over time? Monty has as well pointed out pricing and, and you know, higher uh, power prices really affect behavior both from com- consumers and, and um, also from um, you know from corporates uh, in general as well. So I think you know the two the two areas where these affect the best opportunities uh, are typically energy efficiency, so using less energy to get what you want, and then also kind of the alternative sources of um, of energy as well. And renewables tend to kind of you know give you a fixed price for your power, um, you know, versus because you know exactly. Uh, how much um, your input cost is quite low in terms of operation costs. It's wind or solar that's basically free. But you know the capital outlay uh, up front uh, as well, and that really kind of changes behavior. And, you know, a few few examples where, you know, um, we see opportunities on the consumption behavior side. Uh, one is actually not related to energy itself directly, but it's, you know, changing food patterns, you know, changing diets. Uh, you know, as people in general, as our society, you know, you know uh, moves a bit more towards a, a plant-based uh, diet, also reduces um, carbon emissions overall because in the, in the meat production process, there's a lot of carbon emissions that are happening uh, there. And with you know younger generations becoming a lot more uh, important as a overall proportion uh, of our society, 
that starts to be seen really in uh, in true demand already, and that really affects you know behavior of companies and the type of products they bring to the market as well. Uh, thinking about housing, for instance, as well, um, better insulation, um, LED lighting, uh, double and triple glazing are all opportunities, um, and and they become a lot more important as as energy prices you know um, are are higher. Uh, I live in Massachusetts, and and if you look at the houses around here, they're still poorly insulated. Um, and you know, one way of reducing you know both your power emissions, but also your 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 heating budgets and your cooling budgets in the summer, then would be to better insulate houses. And we've seen already, specifically in Europe, with ex- extremely high energy prices last year, that demand for those opportunities for those products, be it now insulation, um, you know, LED lighting, but also you know, electrification of of, of our economy through electric cars or heat pumps, uh, for instance, as well. Uh, we see a demand of heat pumps has, has, has you know, increased exponentially as well. Um, that, you know, that we think is going to continue uh, as, you know, there's more climate awareness, but certainly as well as power prices uh, remain, uh, remain very high uh, as well. Um, looking at renewables, renewables can certainly have an impact both on the, on the industrial scale, uh, but also on the retail uh, side as well. Um, just reading a report about Belgium, uh, where you know, um, solar production, a power generated by solar in February, which is not the very sunny month, uh, is actually equivalent already than what you know, was produced over you know, a summer month uh, last year. And that's not because it was very sunny, but because we had a lot more um, solar installations you know, in Belgium, driven by the higher energy prices uh, as well. So this is something that we continue to expect, uh, that you know, consumers are... You know, installing more solar on their own roof uh, as well, but then we also see that you know, in, um, utility companies, but also industrials themselves, are investing a lot more in in, in wind um, as well uh, as, a, as a solution. The cheapest source of new electricity is onshore uh, wind turbines, for instance, as well. So we continue to see massive growth uh, there as well. The problem with solar and wind is, however. You know, the wind does not always blow and the sun does not always shine. So we need to have a solution either as a backup, um, which then typically will still be for the time being uh, gas or coal plants, unfortunately, or we need to invest a lot more in, in storage. So that would, again, make a case in an investment case for batteries but also for hydrogen, as we mentioned before as well. Thank you, Jens. Yeah, despite some hurdles which sound to be are capable of being overcome, renewables have a role to play, and it sounds like renewables can make a positive impact over time as trends become more widespread. So, Jens Amantia, very productive, wide-ranging conversation. Thank you very much for spending some time with our advisors, our listeners, our clients here on the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast. Greatly appreciate your time and insights. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.